0: Hi, uh, my name is Andra Gonowella. This is the Burnback Podcast. I'm being joined by my co-host, Ryan Rosenthal, and we are so honored and delighted to be hosting General Stanley McChrystal on this very special episode of the podcast. General McChrystal is a retired four-star. Uh, he was the form- former commander of U.S. and International Security Assistance Forces in Afghanistan and the former commander of JSOC. The Joint Special Operations Command, which is widely considered to be the nation's premier military counterterrorism force, Uh, General McChrystal's sort of claim to fame is he is known for developing and implementing a comprehensive counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan, and for creating a cohesive counterterror organization that revolutionized the interagency operating culture. Currently, General McChrystal, since his retirement, runs the McChrystal Group, a consulting agency that really specializes in leadership. And leadership is really going to be the topic of what we talk to General McChrystal about today as we go through his career and his insights on all the various uh, aspects of leadership. So, General McChrystal, we are so honored to have you. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's my honor.
1: Thanks again, General. So uh, I want to start off this conversation Uh, by really understanding where these principles um, of leadership kind of originated from. And let's talk about the two people who had a profound impact on your life, your parents. And so, so General, what lessons in leadership did your upbringing and the character of your parents instill in you? And how did these values show themselves in a way
2: uh, throughout your military career? Well, it's interesting. My father was a soldier as his father had been. And I wanted to be a soldier from a young age. So people always ask me, what did I learn from my father? I didn't learn how to be a soldier because I never really up close watched him do that. I mean, he worked in the Pentagon or something, but when he went over to Vietnam, I obviously wasn't there. So he was an idea to me as a soldier. It was how he conducted himself just as a, a human being, how he treated other people that was the biggest influence on me because he was always kind he was very very soft spoken man at least in his daily life, and so he was a role model. It was probably my mother that had an even greater impact. My mother was a young southern girl when she met my father, he was a new lieutenant out of West Point in nineteen forty five and he was smitten by her when he met her, and she was an interesting person she was had been raised as sort of a tomboy. She loved to read Greek uh, classics, mythology, stories of heroes, and as a young age, she exposed me to all of those. And then she became involved politically, not as a, a candidate, but she got involved in local politics, things like the school boards and whatnot. And so she she spent a lot of her time both talking about and exhibiting her idealism in a lot of movements. And she was liberal. Uh, and so she raised me to to admire Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and other leaders like that. At the same time, her husband was doing multiple tours in the war in Vietnam, and she was keeping the home together with six children. So it was this, this interesting balance of someone who's able to do the hard things for a family but also keep this other side of her, an intellectual and a, uh, an idealistic side that I think really had quite an impact on how I think today.
0: Definitely. And when we look at leadership general, uh, I want to now dig in a bit for, the I guess, the majority of her interview on your leadership in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. So now, when we think of leadership, we often think of it as this positive trait. But it's not merely a quality found in our, in history's heroes, as we know. It has made our nation's enemies just incredibly deadly. And in this case, I wanted to discuss two, two enemies who have had, who you've had some experience in dealing with former Iraqi President Saddam Hussein and Abu Musab al Zarqawi, leader of Al Qaeda in Iraq. So for our listeners, General McChrystal has been credited with spearheading the operations that captured the former and killed the latter. So, General, When we look back at the Iraq War in the year 2021, we often think of it as long and stretched out due to the civil conflict and the insurgencies that were ever-present, it seems like. However, the actual invasion and the battle against the Iraqi government and Saddam's army was actually relatively short, right? So the government collapsed, and Saddam was on the run before he was captured by JSOC forces under your command at the end of 2003. So why was the elimination of Saddam Hussein Hussein himself so swift? Why was Saddam himself unable to lead a more formal, unified resistance against
2: coalition forces? It's an interesting question. I think the first thing is we shouldn't sell Saddam Hussein short as an effective leader. He was in power in Iraq for almost 30 years, and he fought an eight-year-long war against Iran— an incredibly bloody war, 1980 to 1988, and came out of it better than probably he should have. And he kept Iraq together, although Iraq has multiple uh, components to the population, a Sunni element, a Shia element, a Kurdish element, and it's very tribal. So you have to step back and say, although he was a strong guy with some pretty negative traits, he was also a pretty effective manipulator of power and maintenance in power. Now we need to to look at history to go why he fell so easily, sort of like ripe fruit falling off the vine in the spring of two thousand three. First is in nineteen ninety, he invaded Kuwait. He thought he was going to get away with it. He had a somewhat legitimate argument about that the Kuwaitis were drilling uh, horizontal wells under Iraqi territory, but but it was not accepted as a legitimate invasion by the world. And so the United States and a host of other countries went to throw him out. And we did throw him out of Kuwait. And we gave him a real bloody nose, both in a physical sense, but also in a perception sense. Still, from 1991, he lasted for 12 more years in power. And you remember during those years, we had embargoes on what oil Iraq could sell. We had no-fly zones in the north and south of the country. So in in point of fact, Iraq was under tremendous pressure for 12 years after the first Gulf War until the second. And by that time, he had largely been isolated in the world. He still had good control inside Iraq But the reality was when, in the spring of 2003, after the United States and others had saber rattled for several months and then finally invaded, I think it was viewed by most people inside Iraq who had watched the 1991 war and how quickly the Iraqi forces in the South had been routed. They knew that militarily, Iraq couldn't resist that kind of force. And so once the war started, I think most Iraqis just said, okay, we're not going to win this, and so we're not really going to fight. And there was not a tremendous amount of fighting. Now, he then went into hiding, and he lasted until December of that year, so about seven or eight more months. And during that period, while he was no longer in power, he was still a personality in people's minds. There were a tremendous number of Iraqis that were wondering if Saddam was going to come back into power. And so even after he was captured, you could see in Iraqi leaders, the new government, they were frankly intimidated by him as well, because he still had a certain level, an aura with the Iraqi people that that gave them the concern that he might be able to mobilize an effective resistance and return to power.
1: Well, thank you for that, General. And I think a question that many people ask uh, nowadays is, what would have happened had the US not gone into Iraq, would Saddam have maintained his grip on power? Um, I mean, it's a question that you know people have made different answers to, but I think it's particularly interesting given what we saw, uh, you know, the Arab Spring and uh, the events that occurred after that. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on you know, the potential for Saddam to have maintained his
2: power in Iraq? I think that this is just one guy's opinion. I think that he would have maintained his power for a while a few more years because in reality there was a logic to it in the region he was a balancing act against Iran with their nefarious actions at the same time i think much about Saddam Hussein had been delegitimized worldwide so it was going to be increasingly difficult for him to maintain power maintain power long term i think our invasion was a mistake i think it wasn't necessary i think we could have contained him over time And his regime would have either changed slowly or would have dropped suddenly. But I think that by us going in, we actually created more problems than we solved.
0: So, General, uh, when we look at the war in Afghanistan and Iraq and we think of terrorism and terrorists, so we often think of, I guess, for all of us youngsters looking back on the 2000s now, (laughs) nearly 20, 15 years ago, We often think of Osama bin Laden as our top terror target, at least until his demise in 2011. But then we often forget that al-Zarqawi was really perhaps one of the biggest threats to U.S. forces at that time. So for our listeners, uh, al-Zarqawi led al-Qaeda in Iraq. He sought to spark bloody insurgencies that resulted in a lot of Shia-Sunni civil conflicts. So General, why was al-Zarqawi so unique among terror leaders? What qualities made him so deadly, so effective, and so threatening? Uh, And you were right.
2: He was deadly uh, effective and threatening. He was very different from Osama bin Laden, who had a more genteel upbringing. Osama bin Laden had founded al-Qaeda in 1988, co-founded it. And he was a theoretical, philosophical leader of al-Qaeda. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi had dreamed of joining al-Qaeda when he was younger. But then he formed an organization that ultimately became known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They were very different people. Uh, AMZ was not well-educated. He had spent five years in a Jordanian prison, which had hardened him physically and also sharpened his personal self-discipline. So he was able to be a zealous leader through his personal actions, The fact that he was so committed, he was so willing to live this very austere lifestyle, he was so willing to put himself physically at risk. So he became a charismatic, but also very uh, practical leader on the ground inside Iraq, starting in the really the fall of 2003. He'd already had a, a persona in the terrorist world, but suddenly... His stature arose as he put together a network. The thing about Zarqawi is because he was there and because he took on the Americans and he took on the Shia very, very directly, he developed a following of different constituencies. First, there were those Sunni and Ba'athists who had uh, resented the American and the coalition invasion. There were the Sunnis who were terrified by potential domination by Shia, and he was able to leverage those fears and feelings into a group of people who were following an ideology that was more extreme, the Al-Qaeda ideology, than they probably would have followed otherwise. And he was able to hold this together through a, a kind of leadership that was at once lead from the front. You know, he was out there dressed as a terrorist and all black and carrying a, an M4 carbine So he was able to show himself as an actual on-the-ground fighter, but also he was able to bring people to this greater cause. Now, the thing that was so deadly or dangerous about him is he had a strategic vision. And that strategic vision at times was at odds with what Osama bin Laden wanted. He was too extreme, too violent for Osama bin Laden. And in fact, we'll call it uh, Al Qaeda headquarters in Pakistan sent letters and said they wanted him to ratchet off his attacks against the Shia and some of the ways he was operating and he basically just told them he ignored them because he was in a fight in Iraq that at one at once was the most violent part of the war on terror at that point but it was also arguably the most notable the most effective he was doing what brought people to the Al Qaeda banner around the world. It was this idea that he was in the decisive fight, and his strategy to create a civil war between Sunni and Shia worked out pretty well from his standpoint. He was able to take existing fissures and push them more, uh, push them wider. Certainly, too violent for Bin Laden is
0: very much something, and it really illustrates the uh, the depth of. Uh, this guy's just danger and his brutality. And you know reading your book general, my share of the task, one thing that I found really interesting in your recount of the aftermath of Al-zarqawi's death was that you say, quote, "We had killed Al-zarqawi too late end quote. You describe the insurgency that he wrought as a quote "system of violence with a self-propelling cycle that ironically made Al-zarqawi's leadership less relevant, I guess towards the end of his life. And now you've spoken before on how the, quote, decap- decapitation strategy of taking out central leadership in terror organizations does not work with uh, networked enemies. Can you talk a bit more about what you mean by networked enemies?
2: Certainly. Uh, inside Iraq, but, but supported by foreign fighters and other connections to the outside. So we created this network or coalition of different groups, little locally run parts of Al-Qaeda interact that allied themselves to the whole, connected themselves by modern information technology, as well as some traditional messengers and whatnot. <clears throat> and so instead of being a pyramid-shaped hierarchy with Mr. or Miss Big at the top, giving detailed instructions for what people to do, he gave broad goals he he set a general tone and then he asked each of those organizations to operate more or less autonomously and what that did was that made them very fast it also made them very resilient if you hit one part even if you hit them devastatingly hard it didn't bring down the whole it didn't even slow it down and so he created this very elastic network with himself as the moral leader as well as to a degree the practical leader in terms of pushing general strategy and what it was was it allowed him to become a both a practical leader but also a symbolic leader and so if you look at the time anytime after 2005 or 6 in Iraq all the way up to the rise of ISIS if you asked those al-Qaeda in Iraq members or later ISIS members who their uh, hero was. It was not Osama bin Laden. He wasn't the figure that the mythological figure they admired. It was Zarqawi. And by setting that tone and that expectation, he created an entire cadre of other terrorist leaders who in many ways uh, followed his, uh, his example. They. The decapitation strategy, which is so tempting for terrorist force, counter terrorist forces, because you think if I go get a few key personalities out that I will cripple the enemy. In fact, doesn't work unless you can do it in a very short amount of time and you can get literally all of them. And because of the breadth and depth of what Al Qaeda in Iraq developed, you, you practically couldn't do that. I've, I've been on the record as saying that we killed Zarqawi too late. And that's exactly what happened. In many ways, we started to chase Zarqawi in the fall of 2003, early 2004, and we were after him hard for two and a half years. His efforts, but also our efforts, helped to raise his statue stature, helped to make him more famous and more effective. We put a big bounty on his head. I think it was $50 million and said, if anybody gives information, we get Zarqawi, they get this extraordinary amount of money. And we never got anybody to provide information for that. But but that also reinforced him. It, it made in the minds of people, he must be something really special. And unfortunately, because he was able to survive until June of 2006, by the time we killed him, the damage in many ways had been done. We'd created this huge figure. he had been able to push the idea of a Sunni Shia civil war and so when he was killed, it was important that he be captured or killed. but it was not enough to turn off the progress that he had already created or even erase that the the, uh, the figure that he now in death became
1: well I mean, I think looking at. Uh, this instance is critically important to understand how leaders impact organizations and how their presence or absence uh, impacts the efficacy of their organizations. But I want to now bring in two other cases uh, that might be similar or different. I'd like to get your take on it, that being of uh, the deaths of Osama bin Laden and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Bin Laden, of course, led al-Qaeda and al-Baghdadi uh, led ISIS. Uh, and, and their deaths were you know, certainly decapitation strikes, but uh, were these deaths just symbolic victories, or, or were they actually effective in you know helping dismantle the organization, or at least um, you know striking a severe blow to the organizational structure and ability for these organizations to carry out
2: actions? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm going to give a somewhat nuanced answer, and I hope it comes out clearly. I think the uh, the killing of both Osama bin Laden and Al Baghdadi were what I would call necessary but insufficient. And what I mean by that is, by 2011, Osama bin Laden was as much of an idea and a symbol as he was an operational leader. He really was not able to do a lot of day-to-day control of al-Qaeda because those linkages would have made him vulnerable. At the same time, an occasional message out, and just the fact that he had survived, just the fact A full decade after the 2001 9-11 strikes, he is still out there and still talking, was a symbol to much of the world of the strength of al-Qaeda and the weakness of al-Qaeda's opponents in taking him on. So bringing him to justice through capture or killing was necessary. Had to take that idea that you could live with impunity after doing the kinds of things he'd done you had to put that to bed at the same time because he had already done the acts and then survived for a decade and continued to talk and motivate others you couldn't undo what he had done and so it didn't it didn't suddenly take away all that Osama bin Laden was or that he'd done and the same was true with al-baghdadi the longer they survive <clears throat> The more impotent they make their enemies seem, and the longer they have time to get into people's psyche. Again, I think it's important that they be brought to justice because you don't want any future terrorists to think that there is a retirement home where old terrorists go to, to comfortably live the rest of their years. You want anyone who makes the stark choice to do that to understand it will end violently and suddenly. But that won't affect the, the large, you know, that mindset doesn't really affect the larger populations understanding that for a very long time they were able to push their agenda. And their name, the fact that we still are talking about them, shows the level of some of their power.
0: Certainly. And now let's shift gears, perhaps, away from talking about these terrorist leaders, but talking about how we sort of kill them. Uh, Because your leadership and your reform of JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, was integral to killing El Zarqawi. So when you took over this command, it was certainly a very different organizational structure than what it is now. So, I mean, for our listeners, JSOC was founded in 1980, and was clearly a very refined and sort of rigid structure. If I'm getting what you said in your book correct, uh, over you know those two and a half decades until you took it over. But as you say, the approach JSOC took wasn't working in 2004 as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan continued. Uh, why didn't it work? And general, I guess for our listeners, could you just provide a bit of context about what the duties of JSOC were? Sure.
2: As you mentioned, JSAC was founded in 1980. The decision formally stood up in 1981, but it was created after the failure of the Iran rescue mission, Operation Eagle Claw, in April of 1980. And that was an effort to go into downtown Tehran, the capital of Iran, and bring back 53 Americans who are being held as captives in the American embassy and then a few others in the foreign ministry. It was an extremely difficult mission. So the United States put together the best force it could, came up with this complicated but high-risk plan to conduct a rescue, and it failed. And it didn't fail by incompetence or lack of courage. It failed because it was incredibly complicated, and there were just vulnerable points in the plan. In the rearview mirror to that, Uh, A study was done, the Holloway Commission. It was determined that one of the biggest weaknesses is the United States did not have a standing force, a task force or joint task force that was designed to do the kinds of operations that people thought would be needed in the future. Counter hijacking, hostage rescue, very precise raids and whatnot. We had largely dismantled our special operations capability after the Vietnam War And so we needed to rebuild something. So JSOC was created. And for its first 22 years of its history, it matured impressively, as the United States can do when it puts its mind and resources into something. It created the best counterterrorist force in the world. And it was made up of components, Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, the Rangers, some Special Ops Aviation. Everybody was specially selected. Everybody's exquisitely trained. Almost all are veterans. Uh, prior conflict. And it was lavishly resourced. Whatever the organization needed, it got. And so this organization became really effective and it went through Grenada, Panama, the first Gulf War and a number of smaller operations during that first 22 years. And we had gotten what we had set out to get. We'd gotten an organization designed and extraordinarily competent at doing short term operations on a very episodic or occasional nature, meaning you get a hostage situation, you plan, you you rehearse, you execute with elegant precision, and then you come back. Well, and it was almost designed for a decapitation strategy, you know, take your time and then do the perfect strike against Mr. or Ms. Big and the terrorist network. And, and that would be the coup de main, which would bring down the enemy force. So what we found is, as good as that was, when we got into Iraq in the spring of 2003, this purpose-built thing was not right for the problem that had now emerged. And the problem which had now emerged was much bigger. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was fast-growing. It was also not run as a traditional hierarchy, a pyramid-shaped structure. It was run, as we described earlier, more as a looser network, And it was enabled by information technology so they could move faster, communicate better, coordinate more with information technology. So suddenly that occasional precise operation was not what was going to be effective in Iraq. So we had to change to be able to do more operations, still very well executed, but we had to be able to operate and adapt constantly because the problem was constantly changing. So that the transformation that we underwent literally took stock of the fact we were now going to have to be faster, more decentralized, more adaptable, constantly shifting our both our strategy and our tactics as we go. And you can't do that from a top down, tightly controlled hierarchy. And so we we changed that. Now, we were, just as the enemy was enabled by the information technology, we were able to leverage information technology, which hadn't existed earlier. And so we were able to do a lot of things that we couldn't do before. But the reality was we became an, an, a very different kind of thing. We became, we used to always say, it takes a network to defeat a network. We became a network that operated like a machine with very decentralized decision-making and action, and this high level of transparency of information across this uh, geographically dispersed force. And that was allowed us to be able to see, connect, coordinate, and execute at a speed we never could have. When I took over in the fall of 2003, I became the commanding general. We were doing about four raids a month or one a week. Two years later, we were doing three hundred a month, or ten a night, and we kept that pace up for two and a half more years. So the 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 entire nature of how we operated changed, and the culture had to shift along with it.
1: Absolutely, and I think one of the most impressive aspects is uh, the ability for such a great change to be brought about. But, but General, I want to ask about uh, how how difficult it was for these reforms to to occur, right? I mean, the military is not. Um, Thought of as really the most flexible organization at at times, and so was there any pushback, um, either from the other military leaders or even maybe uh, those under your command?
2: No, everybody agreed. We just fell right in. No, <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, as you can imagine, it there was pushback on a number of levels. There were some people inside and outside the command that just didn't want to change. We all know people like that just don't want to change. And then there were other people who had a more thought out response and that was, we're the best counterterrorist force in the history of the US Army and probably the world. Why would we change? Because what we do is is very effective. And the response was, it may be effective in a in a narrow sense, but we're not doing enough to be effective in a strategic sense. So we have to change. But they, they were a more thoughtful group and they made a pretty good argument that said, if we change from what we have created for 22 years, we may not be effective anymore. And so you had to at least listen to that group. Then there was uh, people external to the command. There were different organizations that that felt they were in competition with JSOC, and therefore they didn't want JSOC to change. There was a certain group of people who uh, thought that if we did too many operations, the reality was we wouldn't have the effect we wanted, and we would have a negative effect, and there's always a little of that. So you have a a whole bunch of resistances – not one group against it for any one reason, but a whole bunch of people with differing perspectives, all of which you don't think you should change. Now, in most organizations, that's enough to kill transportation, or transformation, because what they do is they almost create uh, tar pits, and you try to, you've seen leaders and organizations try to move transformation through this tar pits, and everything gets so hard, people get discouraged. We had a little bit of advantage. One, we were at war, and therefore there was a sense that we didn't have the right not to push hard, and so there was a the burning platform idea. And then there was also this a uh, a culture in JSOC shared by most of the members of the command that were competitive, that were very mission oriented, and believed in the idea that I was taught as a young officer, if it's stupid and it works, it isn't stupid. And so they approached everything with the idea of, I'm going to solve that problem. Doctrine's not going to tell me how, so I'm going to figure it out. And that was helpful. So the reality is you have tremendous forces trying to slow it down, but you have even more forces that saying it's just too important for us not to change.
0: Definitely. And I guess it sort of does sound like this ever-evolving process in terms of these reforms. But uh, now I sort of want to move into the current day, because uh, in a recent interview with NPR, you voiced this view that, you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the war on COVID-19, they are fundamentally more similar than we think, because I mean, we think of public health and security and conflict and war as these just two starkly different battles. But as you said, they are somewhat similar. And when we look at these two starkly different fights, I guess, what do you see as the failures in leadership across these two issues?
2: Sure. Well, we'll talk first is the similarities in the threat. You know, a terrorist organization like Al Qaeda is an idea that spreads quickly among people in fertile ground. And so you have a viral opportunistic nature to the threat, which will grow very rapidly if you allow it. And it will be lethal if it gets the opportunity to focus on elements that aren't able to defend themselves they 're also a bit amorphous you can 't see them that you know they 're around, so they create fear and they create uncertainty because of the nature of them and so, in actuality, a terrorist network and a virus have more uh, similar than differences. If you go back and read the nine eleven commission report, of course there 's you know hundreds of pages of really interesting accounts, but the great line that 's been quoted so much is The failure was literally a failure of imagination. The the information to stop the 9-11 attack existed in the United States government. All that had to happen was to connect the dots and for people to be able to connect the dots and then draw some pretty rational conclusions. The physical act of stopping the attack would have been pretty simple. But we couldn't do that. We we because of bureaucratic siloing, because of cultures, habits, all the things, the different pieces of the US government just couldn't connect effectively enough and then put together a picture and act on it. If we go back to COVID, we say, well, this COVID came, we'd never seen COVID nineteen before. And so it's right that you know this was a black swan that appeared. But that's absolutely untrue. We have been approached by viruses countless times through history. Even just in months before uh, COVID-19 arrived, Crimson Contagion, an exercise, was uh, was hosted by HHS, the United Health and Human Services in the United States. And it, it had a scenario remarkably like COVID-19. Public health understood the threat of an airborne virus transmitted between humans, we knew that it was inevitable. They would come in a certain, you know, uh, periodic nature. They would assault society, and we actually knew the right answer. We knew how to curtail that. We knew the public health measures that have to occur, and but we didn't do it. And you say, now wait a minute. If we if we knew the threat and we knew it was inevitably coming, and we knew what to do about it, why didn't we act more effectively. And you compare the American response to many other countries, and we don't don't come out very well. And it was largely because we decided to fight it as 50 different states and countless different cities and and many more counties and areas, almost individually. We didn't connect information-wise. We didn't have national leadership that provided a clear narrative, a set of priorities, the inspiration that we needed to do it. And so when it comes back what you really needed against COVID-19 was to mobilize America. Mobilize us first in our hearts and minds and then practically in things like sharing ventilators when when elements need them, being able to not have a competitive process with states bidding against each other for protective equipment and then a a political discourse that makes a threat that's anything but political suddenly become a political issue. And and we made ourselves more vulnerable than we needed to be. And the same happened initially with terrorism. We got better about it. But if a society can't come together with a coordinated response, it will always be defeated in detail or at least lose far more than we need to. Absolutely.
1: I mean, these leadership principles and the lessons that you've taken from your career in the U.S. military uh, can be applied across the board in in many different scenarios. And I mean, that's most clear with your work right now at the McChrystal Group, which uh, you've led since your retirement from the U.S. military. And it really defines the idea of battlefield to the boardroom, This, this translation of skills and lessons in leadership from your time as a general in the war zone to solving problems affecting the private sector and companies and organizations. Um, in that sphere as well. And so, so General, I, I'd like to ask what you think are the biggest lessons that you've taken away from your career in the military that are most commonly applied to the private sector.
2: And you're absolutely right that the, uh, the transferal of lessons both ways is almost 100%. We, we tend to think it's very different venues. People say war is different than business and whatnot, and, and I contest that. That's not true. But here are the key things I found. First is technical expertise or scientific breakthroughs, the the uh, the ability to invent a piece of equipment or create a vaccine or do something, are traditionally not the hard parts. You can... You can find people who can do that. You can produce the thing. The hard part is the collaboration. It's putting the pieces together. Don't know how many organizations I've seen, worked with or been a part of where the sum of the parts was less. You know, the actual output was less than the sum of the parts because we just couldn't get the pieces to connect together, the gears to operate and functioning. And part of that is because... We allow different fiefdoms to arise. We allow personalities. we allow uh, organizations to have a general strategy, but then not be aligned on it, so that everybody's rowing hard, but they're not rowing in the same direction. And that, sta- that sounds so simple. You say, well, that's not the hard part. The hard part's coming up with a strategy. I would argue, in most corporations, you can come up with a strategy on a Saturday morning with two or three smart people. But getting the organization aligned and disciplined to execute that strategy with energy is really hard. And that's the difference. That's where they say that culture trumps strategy every time. That's the kind of culture we're talking about. And so it's the ability to get different parts of the organization uh, moving in synchronization that's really key.
0: So, General, when we look at our armed forces, we see the threat matrix rapidly evolving. Certainly, the world looks like a very different place than, than it was when you left the service in 2010. And, you know, we appear to be moving back towards this idea of great power competition, multipolarity, uh, as China and Russia look to be our biggest geopolitical adversaries. And then we also see warfighting domains shifting. We see warfighting occur in cyberspace to an extent amidst this range of hacks and cyber attacks. Uh, do you think that the U.S. armed forces are adequately prepared to deal with these new threats, especially in light of the recent Russian Solar Winds hack? Do you even think the U.S. armed forces, do they have a prerogative to defend against hacks and other sort of things in cyberspace
2: to that extent? Yeah, that's a really tough question. And and the short answer is, we are not prepared for the next war. And you say, well, how can this retired guy say that? I say that because I believe that any rational actor will not fight the war the United States is prepared for. The last person to do that was in 1991, when Saddam Hussein put his army out in the desert. and He let us, with the most technologically advanced force in the world, just go crush it everybody else is smarter than that. And so what they will do is they will see, okay, what is the United States prepared for? What are they focused on? Where are their assets? And they will fight a different kind of war. That's the rational actor doing that. And so almost by definition, we are not going to be prepared for what people come at us with. Now, you say, well, we just have to prepare for everything. (laughs) That's hard and that's expensive because for the United States, that spectrum includes high-end warfare against Russia or potentially China or even North Korea of a very brutal nature. But it also includes, at the other end, cyber warfare, terrorism, non-state actors. And the challenge is, even 30 years ago, most of the very threatening technologies were monopolized by nation states and and a small number of nation states, precision strike weapons, night vision, things that were game changers militarily were really only available to a few countries who had the technology and the, the resources to buy them. That's almost entirely untrue now. Not only is all technology available to people from drones to night vision to cyber weapons. They're they're available in such scale and at such low cost, people in their basement, two or three people, suddenly can be theoretically players if you're talking in a sci, uh, a cyber world or as a terrorist, maybe constructing some version of a weapon of mass destruction. So suddenly we had this really broad waterfront uh, potential threats. And we kind of beat ourselves up because we're not ready for every one of them when it happens. I, I think our defenses of the future are going to have to be at, at their core, very, very adaptable. We're going to need a certain level of capacity at the, the high end, just because the threat of that doesn't allow you to recover from a, a first strike that uh, that cripples you. But for other things, we're going to have to have an organization that Uh, skates to the puck, meaning the kind of war that's coming up, we start with a baseline of capability for cyber defense, weapons of mass destruction. But then as those threats evolve and they change geographically and in their nature, we're going to be able to have to to adapt to those really quickly. And we're going to have to be able to deal with them. Um, You know, the French couldn't move the Maginot Line after it was built. So you can't have that kind of defense in the future, but you're going to have to have the kind of uh, integrated defense that allows you to change it as the threat changes. And I don't mean this is going to be all uh, military, because to a great degree, it's going to involve intelligence community. And in cases like cyber, a tremendous number of commercial entities all are going to have to be in some ways knitted together. So that people aren't culled from the whole the herd and attacked effectively separately.
1: Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought up the commercial entities because they're they're so crucial in uh helping the the U.S. prepare for all of these threats and and the changes in the threat matrix uh, as technology advances and and it really requires innovative thinking. And so how how does the U.S. military work to attract innovative thinkers uh, of all these different mindsets? Right, we we see these large big technology companies attracting great talent and great people, uh, and they've done a very good job on, on having pipelines, but how can the U.S. military uh, replicate a similar process by which uh, they have soldiers for the future ready across all of these different professions, um, and particularly in the in the cyber realm where uh, it seems to be a great challenge um, for the U.S. military in that talent uh, being recruited in the tech space is not as impressive as other parts of the U.S. military.
2: Yeah, you nailed maybe the key issue here. And I think there are really three ways. The first is understanding that the U.S. military, particularly as a professional military now, a volunteer military, the model is that you enter as a lieutenant, as an officer, or as a private, as an enlisted soldier. And so every sergeant major started as a private and, and works their way through a uh, pyramid up and the same with officers. So your senior non-commissioned officers and your senior commission officers grew up in that guild. The great weakness there is that although you get great cultural, you know, connection and, uh, and competence in some things, you don't, you aren't outside your guild that much. So you don't develop those other kinds of skills, technical skills, and you also don't develop The broader imaginative mindset. Now, some military would say, no, I'm imaginative, but I would say generally it does have that effect. So I think you got to do three things. I think the first thing is you've got to challenge that model. You've got to say, we are going to bring people in with not just different technical skills, but different mindsets laterally into the force. If somebody is a good, you know, cyber person or whatever, we're not going to make them come in as a private we're going to bring them in at a more senior level and, and we're going to operate them and, and not treat them like they're some outsider. They're going to need to be soldiers in the military culture. And they may not be there for 20 years. They may be there for three years. But so lateral entry is going to be key, even in the officer ranks. And I would argue senior officer ranks, we should do that. And I think we'd be a better force for it. I think we're also going to have to, in our in our vertical structure, we're going to have to look to bring in young people with those skills. And those that have different skills, we've got to let them mature differently than we had. Not every uh, person as they go through their military career should have to look and act and think like the traditional soldier. Uh, And that's okay. I think we'd be just fine if we if we create some uh, some people who aren't quite the same, and and a lot of people will be threatened by that idea. Uh, the last thing is, I think we're going to have to partner with outside organizations. I mean, we're going to have to put a lot more military members out in in businesses and a lot of technology businesses, so that they learn, they 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 develop connections, and we're going to have to bring the same in. We're going to have to. Partner with them much tighter than we had before, some of our acquisition laws in the past have made us very frightened to get too close to business for fear of making a mistake with acquisition laws. and I understand that, but I think we're going to have to to do some reform in that so we can get a much tighter connection
0: certainly general and I think you really hit that point like right you know right on the head so Especially because when we look at a lot lot of computer science, perhaps majors and students, they don't even know that a lot of these opportunities exist, right? Like they don't, like a lot of my friends who are in engineering and comp sci, they might just go for, you know, the Twitter, the Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, all of those companies, because they're big, they recruit well. And it seems as if there's this, I guess, this uh, idea of culture fit to an extent. And then sort of jumping off of that, When we talk about the private sector's relationship with the U.S. military, for many of us, we often think about it just being in terms of the creation of technologies and products uh, for the military's usage. But what about the role of work processes, organizational structures? Is the military doing a good job of importing these types of processes into its work? Does it even need to?
2: It absolutely needs to it needs to be a place where all of those different ways of doing businesses get tested and pulled and pushed. Um, I don't think the military's done an intentionally bad job of that. But if you think about that kind of guild manning structure, it's just not something that becomes natural. You're not going to bring in a different management style if you've never seen it, if you just aren't aware of it. And so this is where that that uh, cross-leveling of people can be part of it. And then I think we need to, at the more senior levels in the Department of Defense and whatnot, we need to bring people in, iconoclastic experiences, that will come in and say, well, why are we doing it that way? Why can't we change? You know, Business has gotten to a very tight cycle, a Darwinistic cycle. If companies don't adapt really quickly, even iconic ones, if you watch this morning, Intel dropped a significant amount because people think that they have not been able to adapt. So just because we're the United States military doesn't mean we're better than our opponents. We're only better than our opponents if we stay better than our opponents. You know, it doesn't matter your battle streamers or your history. It only matters your ability now. And so I think bringing those different practices in is something that that needs to be leaned on from the highest levels.
1: General, there's, there's certainly much more we could dig into, but I'm just going to ask you one final question before we wrap up. And and given the name of our podcast, you might be able to see this question coming. Uh, but
2: how many burn bags do you think you've used throughout your career? Wow. Thousands and thousands and thousands. And and in many cases, we, we did a lot of planning for things that never happened. We did a lot of uh, analysis of information that turned out to not to be key. But I would argue going through that experience just because you burn it doesn't mean you didn't learn something from the experience.
0: Definitely. And on that note, General, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Uh, we are so honored that you took the time. And uh, thank you for your service. I mean, you helped us, you helped keep this country safe. And, you know, there is never enough gratitude to really express on that regard. And uh, for our listeners, uh, you can follow the general at Stan McChrystal on Twitter. Please check out his podcast, No Turning Back. And also, if you want to learn more about the general's life, please read his book, My Share of the Task. The general has written some other books on leadership and so on. So please check those out. But general, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you're kind to have me. All the best.
1: To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at burnbagpod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.